Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. And today is really just a catching up day. There's so much that has been happening in this crazy world that we're living in that sometimes it's nice to just to just visit without an agenda because uh, it's gotten a little harder over the last few months to just visit. So this is, we're recording this in on July uh, 3rd, and uh, what's going on, I never know when something is going to air, but what's currently going on in the United States is we're seeing a real upsurge in the number of cases of the coronavirus that in, uh, the, especially in the southern states, there's a big uptick in the number of cases. Whereas in New York State, where I live, back in March, we were in the worst conditions. And we were the, the area that everybody was watching. And the numbers were just, just terrifying. But we really worked hard. And, um, and we followed the, <clears throat> the physical distancing guidelines. We we're wearing our masks, we're washing our hands, we're doing all of those things. And we brought the numbers down in New York State. I mean, it's just really uh, been, it's been, Dominique, it's been a fascinating experience to watch. Uh, yeah, and I guess it has a parallel with the training. So we have in the horse world, we have training where people are saying, well, that's just the way it's always been done. And this is, you know, this is um, how uh, somebody told me you should train a horse. And then there are those of us who have been looking at the science. Yes. We look at the science of training and we let that be our touchstone and we let that be our guide. And if we, you know, if it's a super hot day and we're just feeling stressed beyond belief and we go off the rails a little bit, and we grumble at our horse, you know, we at least can say, oh, I just use negative reinforcement in a, um, in a way that uh, does not promote the kind of relationship that I want with my horse. And I understand what I did yeah. and all out that comes from that. And so we're, we're really seeing this. And I, and I don't want this to become political because I know people, some people will, their ears will flat closed and they'll be saying, you know, we get the virus everywhere. We don't, we don't want it here. We want horse training, but the virus is impacting everything that we do. And I do think it's an interesting to look at these two models where in, in New York state, They've really, really followed the data. And mm-hmm. if, if the numbers are showing a problem, they don't move forward in reopening the economy. Um, they follow what the numbers tell them. And so far, knock on wood, it's working. Um, 
but the rest of the country is trying different different experiments. There are different <laughs> experiments going on in every state, and I think they really can look at them that way. And so it's still not, travel is still problematic, which means that for me, one of the things that I've been exploring and that I'd love to chat about are the online clinics because I've just found one that I did it was just a fascinating experience. But I know you also have a, oh, let's, you know, a wish list of things that you wanted to chat about. So catch us up on what's going on where you are. And what, Stella, what you I wanted to talk about something that you wrote that um, I thought was very interesting. This is in our course, our introduction to uh, applied behavior analysis. There's the course, um, but there's also a lot of comments and uh, Mary has been doing it a fabulous job of oh, answering. Such a treasure. Oh my God. I mean, this is like value over the value. She's she's just answering and giving all this information, um, following people's comments and questions in the course. And so are you. It's been fun for me because you know, I'm used to answering emails and emails and I'm used to being sort of when I put up a course or something like that that I'm often the one answering or uh, I'll have some of my coaches Cindy Martin is on, on my online course what a treasure she is in terms of responding but you know it's sort of like I, I know the answer I would give and it's been really fun for me to sit back and wait for Mary to have the time to respond mm -hmm. Because her perspective is is a little bit different, mm -hmm. and she's it's still that very grounded in the practical, but also you know very much coming from the perspective of a really deep understanding of applied behavioral analysis. So I just I've just been so enjoying reading her answers and seeing seeing what she brings to each question. And it's so enriching, so enriching. She is a treasure. She is. So this this paragraph that I'm going to read uh, was written by you, and it's in the it's at the very beginning of the course. It's um, it's in the introduction, where um, we talk about transitions uh, when we go from one training environment or one environment to another environment and the impact that it can have on our learners. Uh, for instance, if you're doing, you know, you're training a game and then all of a sudden it's over and you're going into another environment, there are examples of classrooms and kids where the learner is sensitive, of course, to the difference in reinforcement. You know, there you may go from a very for, from an environment where uh, the learner is highly reinforced to another environment where reinforcement drops. And so there, there was a, and there's also a discussion around creativity. And so I'm going to read this paragraph, but what, I, what I'm very interested in talking about is how things outside of our training sessions still impact our training and our relationship with our learners, and that we should be aware of those things. So there's uh, someone talks about a, a horse, and you, so this is what you wrote. It's in the middle of the answer, but it's a part that I thought was very strong. 
Often these are very smart horses who have been very frustrated by people and who have been punished for their eagerness. These are horses who become desperate for the clarity that clicker training brings. When someone stays and trains and trains and then leaves, they become anxious for more. That's especially true if the handler then comes back but is no longer using clicker training. All of a sudden, these new, very clear rules are no longer working. The extinction effect on this new learner is intense. So this is something that happens completely outside of the training session. I mean, you've trained, you left, and you come back, and you're doing your chores in the barn, and your learner is going through an extinction process, and you may not even be aware of it. Where that came from. And the horse, they're, they're usually horses that help me to see something with greater clarity. So this goes way, way back to the very beginning of my exploration of clicker training. And for my horses, for, for Peregrine, it was a very smooth transition in. But for other horses, we, and there would be what we often called the Helen Keller moment. I was going to ask you after. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I explain what you mean. <laughs> so the Helen Keller moment, and at some point this reference will probably no longer work because no one will have watched the movie, but it goes back to the movie, I think it's called The Miracle Worker. I think it's Patty Duke was playing Helen Keller and then her teacher, Ann Sullivan, I think was Ann Bancroft, but that's irrelevant. So Helen Keller is is blind and deaf, and her family did not know what to, how to cope. And so in the movie, she's depicted as this very wild and basically unhappy creature. And, and Sullivan is trying to communicate with her. Mm-hmm. And she's been trying, trying, trying to make sense of, you know, if I, if I, the, the hand gestures that I'm making are symbols, and they relate to the real world. And she's getting nowhere and she's getting frustrated. And finally, in one, there's this great scene where uh, she thrusts Helen Keller's hands under a water pump and she starts pumping the water. And as she's pumping this cold water over this child's hand, she's, she's making the symbol for water in her hand. And Helen Keller makes the connection that this means something, this is water. She makes the connection. And then she goes running from one object to another object, you know, demanding what's, what does, what is this? What is this? What is this? Mm. And it's a very dramatic scene of, you know, suddenly the world makes sense. Suddenly you can communicate. You can reach out in your darkness. You can reach out of the darkness and communicate with this other being. And for so many of the horses, The way they've been handled has been incredibly confusing. Mm. And that the person that they're with has been inconsistent or unclear. And and this isn't isn't necessarily saying that this is a a mean and nasty person. It's just for, for this horse, this person has been unclear, frustrating, hasn't listened to them, and this this is a frustrated horse living in the darkness. And then you start clicker training, and it's oh my goodness, my I can make sense of my human. 
my, you know, this makes sense to me what they're asking. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, and we can communicate. And, and so you have this clicker training session and it's this huge light bulb moment. And then the person takes their treat pouch and walks away as though the universe has not flipped upside down and inside out, which it has for the horse. And they don't, and, they, and it's just sort of business as usual. And this horse is just desperate for the communication. Hmm. So there were a couple horses early on. One of the, one of the horses, my, well, uh, Magnet, who was at that time my school horse. And Magnet was, he was a lovely horse. Lovely manners, very sweet, very lovely, very suitable for what I wanted in terms of helping people to learn more about the single rein riding. And I was just beginning to explore clicker training. So I uh, was introducing my various clients to the clicker training and we were all loving it. And the horses had all been fed hand treats before. So feeding treats for the horses that I was working with was not an issue, but it's always a worry. You know, I had the same questions that everybody else has of, you know, what happens if you start feeding treats? Will the horse get muggy? And here was, you know, I had one school horse and he was very polite and I wanted him to stay polite. So I was a little worried about, well, if I start using the treats, will I destabilize him? Is it sort of like a Pandora's box? If I open the Pandora's box, will I regret it? So, but I eventually got to the point where the only horse that I was working with who was not clicker trained was my own. And that wouldn't do. So I introduced him to the clicker and he was lovely. He was fine. It didn't even create a blip on the landscape. And he could come in and we could work together. And then he was living out in, we were at a boarding barn. He was living out in a paddock with several other horses. And there were, it was an afternoon lesson program. And I know that there were people who were going up and petting him and and, you know, interacting with him because he was a pretty, lovely, sweet horse. And so it caused no problem for him whatsoever that there were times where we were clicker training and times where there was this communication was not available. Then mm -hmm. one of the other horses that had the very great privilege of uh, being able to work with was Gregor who's owned by Sarah Sturman. And Gregor is, he's in lesson three of the DVD series. And I've talked about him and written about him. He was this absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous uh, Dutch warm blood stallion. He was bred to be an Olympic superstar. He had just enormous spirit. And I think it's one of those cases where they're able to breed these just unbelievably incredible horses. But on some of the farms, they were using training methods that were out of date for the horses that, for these athletic spirited horses that they were producing. And so they tried to suppress Gregor's behavior. And we know what happened because Sarah's husband worked at the breeding farm where Gregor was 
born and where he was started, and he saw how this horse was handled. And Gregor became incredibly aggressive. He went through all the top trainers in Europe. He was eventually sent to the United States, and Sarah's husband heard about him, and they decided to buy him. It was one of those beliefs that if I'm just better than everyone else, I'll be able to ride this horse. But being better wasn't, they, he, he was, he'd been handled by really skilled people, mm -hmm. but with the wrong approach for his temperament. Mm -hmm. So Martin finally gave, just threw in the towel, got really frustrated. And Sarah stepped in because we, she just, she just encountered my work and she started working with uh, Gregor and started experimenting with the clicker training. And the door in for Gregor was actually trick training because it was a clean slate. Nobody had touched it. But the point with Gregor was you had to fill his dance card all mm -hmm. the time. He couldn't leave gaps because the gaps made him nervous. It's like, oh, any moment the other shoe is going to drop. Mm -hmm. He needed the security of the communication. He needed the communication to always be there. So when you were around him, you were around him as an active clicker trainer. Mm. Anything else was too overwhelming for him, given his background. Uh, we did a, a clinic at the farm where Sarah kept Gregor. And one of the attendees had a very, very active, very smart, needing to be busy, sort of a border collie type horse. And she watched Sarah with Gregor. And she watched how Sarah filled his dance card, that they were always in conversation. And that was what she took home to her own horse, hmm. that she had one of those horses who was not like Magnet, who, you know, could, where you could take long pauses and you could just hang out with him and he was fine. She had one of those horses that really, really needed the conversation. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, you know, there are some horses that, you know, you, you have an, uh, a very dedicated training session and then it's clear that, oh, now I'm cleaning the barn and we're not engaged in that kind of a conversation. And the horse can make that distinction mm -hmm. and you're fine. And then you have the Gregors of the world or horses who, for whatever, in terms of their temperament or their background, they need their dance card filled. Mm -hmm. And that, of course, that's the challenge when you're first starting out with clicker training. Because when you're first starting out, you don't have a lot of repertoire. You don't and you don't really know how to fill a dance card. Well, one one thing you mentioned in that answer was that um, the beauty, and you can explain what what that strategy is. But the beauty of the twenty treat strategy is that it shows the horse that training can stop, and it will come back. It's yes. okay. Maybe you can explain. So when you're first starting. I think it's a good idea to do that because, you know, although you may think you're 
doing this for yourself or thinking time or to reassess at the same time, the horse is learning something. Right. So, so what I have people do is count out 20 treats and by treats, normally we're feeding, especially in the early days, you're, you're, you're feeding say slices of carrot, carrot coins, or you're feeding, I feed a hay stretcher pellet that is about the size of the tip of my finger. So these are, it's easy to count out 20 of those. And, and I, I don't want people to just sort of guess. I actually want them to count them because I think there's value in holding 20 treats in your hand and knowing what is the volume, what is the weight, so that when I'm reaching into uh, the, hay, the container that has the hay stretcher pellets, I have a pretty good notion of what I'm putting in my pocket. And I have a pretty good notion of what I am dispensing because at some point I went through that discipline. So that's, that's one piece. And what the 20 treats does is it sets a limit to how long you can stay with your horse. So you've got 10 plus or minus trials because you've got to save a few treats for your exit strategy, whether that's dropping some treats in a grain bucket and then closing the door and walking away if you're working in a stall or dropping some treats in a bucket on the ground if you're out in a paddock or just on the ground if your horse understands that. But you need a few generally for an exit strategy. And then sometimes you'll feed a, you know, two treats, three treats, one treat. So you don't have a lot of trials, which means that you're, you can't get into a whole lot of trouble in 10 plus or minus trials. But if you filled your pockets and you took your target out and you held the target up and your horse touches it and click and treat, and oh, this is fun. And now you're moving the target here and you're moving it there and you're moving it over here and everything is going great, except that you're not noticing that your horse is pinning his ears and threatening his neighbor after you click because he's telling his neighbor to stay away. This is my food, my game. But if you had the just the the 20 treats in your pocket and had a video camera running, which would be really ideal. It gives you time to step away and think about, well, what just occurred there? So while I'm filling my pocket, I'm doing that assessment of, do I like what just happened? What just occurred? What do I want to do with my next round of 20 treats? And that skill of being able to train and assess, I think that's that's a skill that you develop over time. You know, at first, if you're brand new to training, it's enough to just think, oh, right, I'm supposed to click now, without also being able to really take in all that's occurring as you click and treat. So it's a it's a great it's a great um, training wheels for the handler, mm -hmm. but it's also what you were indicating, it's so important for showing the horse that the session is going to end. There will be a break mm -hmm. and then you'll be back. Yeah. And again, we had, uh, it, was a, it was a really neat little horse. He was a Irish bred cob, um, black and white tuxedo. Very pretty, 
very pretty little Irish cob, one of those nice chunky and very smart. He had a complete novice as his owner, and it took him all of probably less than five minutes to size her up and to become completely in charge of their relationship. And she got a hold of the a, a booklet I wrote, that I wrote very early on that um, gave sort of a, a, a quick, a, a short introduction to clicker training. It doesn't didn't have all of the depth of detail that's in the books and the online course and the DVDs. It was just a booklet. And she read the first couple pages of the first chapter and went out to the barn. So she didn't have a lot of information. And when she went out to the barn, her very, very smart horse very quickly sized up the game, discovered that food was involved, so therefore it was a good game, and that, that he would now be in charge of the rules. So within no time at all, she was told by the owner of the barn that if she didn't stop that clicker training stuff, she would have to leave because her horse was banging, hmm. banging on the stall door, demanding that she come and feed, you know, basically just um, give him goodies. So she brought him to a clinic and we had the perfect setup for him. The owner of the facility had a, it was, an, it was a converted farm building. And in the middle part was sort of a, was a riding space. And there were um, big telephone poles that were used to create a divider, a rail, separating that area from a loafing area. And she had brought in some just phenomenal round pen type panels. And she built a small, she built a stall in that loafing area using the front, the telephone pole sort of as the, from our watching point of view, the front. And then she put a, a piece of plywood uh, on the bottom underneath. So everyone who was in the clinic could easily see the horse. And yet he was in a stall space and we had protective contact. Right. So we went through the, you know, I got out my 20 treats, we went through the initial targeting, um, used up the number of treats that I wanted, stepped away. I couldn't go completely out of sight, but, you know, we stepped away, got more treats, talked about what had just happened, went back to the horse. And he, at that stage, that first round, he was banging. Mm -hmm. So we got to see the behavior. But I timed the return so that when I turned back to him, he had, he was, it was in a moment of where he was pausing. Mm -hmm. And then we went through another round of targeting. And then, and, and this is one where, oh, I wish I'd filmed this horse. He was a, definitely a fish that got away. He was fascinating. But then I walked away, talked again about what had just happened, what we wanted to do next, all the things that you talk about in the clinic. Went back and did another little round and then 
um, sent him out. And we did another horse. We did some other things. Then we brought. Then I sent his owner out to get him. She brought him back into the into the stall area. This this put together stall, and we did another round of training. We probably worked on grown ups. Did some targeting. I don't remember the exact details, but I do remember one of the things that I would do is we'd do a little bit, and then I would go sit in a chair, and then when he was. Uh, looking at me, I would get up and we would interact again. And so we did a little bit of training, sent him out. Um, third time that she that the owner brought him back in, she was in tears, absolutely in tears. She said this horse had never shown any interest in her whatsoever. And except when, you know, to demand treats. Mm. And the first time she went out to get him, he had her his back to her and he walked away from her. Second time that she went out to get him, he looked up at her and watched her come. The third time she went out to get him, he ran up to the gate. Okay. And that's why she was in tears. It's a great feeling when you have your horse run up to you. Yeah. It really is. Yeah, it's and, fun. And, but the really interesting thing is that the pawing, without, having, without working on it directly, mm. vanished. Just wasn't there. Yeah. That as he saw that... He used that, another behavior that worked with you. Well, and, and, and that as he saw that the session ends, but we would come back. Right. The session ends, but we would come back. Mm-hmm. And as he saw that, what he, you know, who knows what went on in his, in his thinking, but the discovery for him was that, you know, he didn't, it's not like those, you know, the horses in the big boarding barns where they're waiting, 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 waiting for their hay and they just start banging on the walls because they're hungry and they are, you know, and the hay comes and they, inadvertently get reinforced for all that banging. For him, it was incredibly important that the training session was not, let's do one long session and then he goes out to his paddock and that's it. Mm -hmm. It was doing these small sessions and so that they, they stopped and then they started up again. They stopped, they started up again. Was incredibly important in terms of just helping him to settle into the clicker training experience. And I've seen this in many horses. Mm -hmm. He was just he was just such a clear example of it that he always springs to mind when when this subject comes up. But I've seen this over and over again that, that taking a break and it can be it doesn't have to be a long break. It's just I'm just going over here to reach into this bucket to put another 20 treats into my pocket, but that is enough to do a lot of good things for the horses. And one of the things that we often would see with the horses is that when you return, say you're doing the initial touch the target introduction, more often than not, what you will see is that there is a jump in the what the horse is offering. Mm -hmm. That uh, they're much more solid 
in touching the target. It's more consistent, more deliberate, you know, that you see, you, you see a definite improvement. So they've, even though it doesn't necessarily, it's not been a long break necessarily, but there's definitely been processing. So I think it's, it's worth taking the time to think about what you want to do with the conversation outside of the formal training session, because the conversation is happening uh, and you have to decide what you do. It seems that we're constantly planning. <laughs> you know, when we start teaching a behavior, we have to think about, okay, what's the future of that behavior? Because that will have an impact on how I teach, what I teach. But even outside of the training sessions, you know, what we do or don't do has an impact. And, you know, for instance, can a horse decide if a session begins? Is this allowed or is this considered to be a bad horse who thinks he's in charge of the rules? But what behavior will work to start a session? Or is that something you absolutely don't want to be bothered with when you're done, you're done, and you just want it to go into an extinction? You don't want the horse to ask to continue to have that conversation. Or what does, let's just begin with something even more basic. What does outside a training session mean? What do you, well, for me, it means, you know, when, when you, formal training session, you decide you go in the arena, you have your pouch, you have a, a goal behavior in mind, you train and you bring back your horse when you're done, throw some treats and you're done. Then you're in the barn, but of course the horse wants to continue to interact. And, and I will always remember the first time I asked you about this. This is years and years ago because some people complain about this, that they feel that their horse is always is always eager and that he never relaxes. And, and so I remember writing to you about this and you said, well, I want that conversation. I, want, I love that the horse wants to speak with me like that and engage with me. I'm just going to make it so that it's pleasant and that it's uh, manageable, but I don't want to extinguish it. And I thought, again, it was such a different perspective. Right. And I loved it. And for me, it's, you know, I've always valued since then the fact that the horses, the clicker trained horse, they want to engage. It's just for us to plan and organize it in a way that it's polite and pleasant to be around. Right. But but I still want to go back to what does outside a training session mean? Mm. So you said, well, it's when I take them into the arena. Well, but mm. how did you get into the arena? Were you given this uh, wonderful horse who had uh, intact skills where you could go directly into, into an arena and, and everything was fine? Or did you need to begin in a stall or yeah. aisle and uh, maybe in the barn aisle you wanted to groom your horse but he was mm -hmm. fidgety and so uh, you taught him to stand on a mat and to stay on a mat longer and you worked on grown-ups are talking and ground time all in the barn aisle 
And so your your formal training session was occurring not in the arena, but mm -hmm. around the grooming. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I remember when I first got Pico, he was not very polite inside his box. He would always push the door open with his nose. Okay. And he wanted out before I was out. So we worked that, we worked on that, you know, just making it very reinforcing to be patient and put his nose into the halter and wait for me to open the door. So it's easy because, you know, you just barely open the door and you reinforce a lot. And it doesn't take a long time for a horse to think, oh, okay, this is pretty cool. We're going to stay here, do nothing, and just wait for her to open the door. So it's not, it's not a very complicated thing to train, but certainly it makes life much more pleasant around a horse to have a horse that's very patient and that waits for the cue to come out, which is the cue that everyone who's learned with you does, you know, that hand gesture, inviting the horse out of his stall politely. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, of course it is. That for me is a training session. You know, yes. pretty... Yeah. So it begins right at the stall and, you know, over time it no longer feels like a formal training session because he's not learning the manners around exiting from a stall. He's not learning to wait. He knows how to wait. And so it's just part of the conversation of, oh, look, I see you waiting and I can open the door and I invite you out. But that's all part of the filling the dance card. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for, for, for me, when I'm thinking outside formal training sessions, I'm thinking more, you know, you're, you, you're in the barn aisle and you're talking with someone or you're just, I don't know, writing something in the notebook or whatever. And, or you've just arrived. You've just arrived in the barn and they're like, ooh, there she is. But you're not quite ready yet. Or you're training another horse because if you have more than one, you start with number one. But what if number two is already starting to say, ooh, when is, when is it my turn? You know, what do you do with all those conversations going on at the same time? Well, but isn't that part of... A formal training session is to teach those skills. It is. Well, in a way, it is. It is. The horses always tell you what they need to work on. So, you know, if, if your horse is totally comfortable, you take out Pico and Bonanza goes, oh, Pico's gone out. I think I'll just take a nap. You're, you're, you're golden because they understand the, the routine. You're golden. But if... Instead, Bonanza spends the time banging on the stall, you know, oh, Bonanza's telling me that I need to work on this. So now I've got to go have a cup of tea and think about how do I want to, what do I do? How do I work with this behavior? And there's management too, obviously. I mean, you have to decide because for me, you know, I have the order is always Woody first, Bonanza second, and Pico, who is the least patient third. Um, which is something I might have reconsidered, but that's now the order. And I just give them some hay yeah. um, while I'm training. So, you know, I've used more a management solution for this. So they're busy eating hay and they're very happy. Um, so they know what the order is and they know they're getting a, a flake of hay. Right. And management is always part of good training, setting up 
the environment for success. But I'm not sure that for so for me, I you know yes I understand what we generally mean by uh, a formal training session. You know right now we've moved. I'm 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 in the barn aisle and I'm walking up and down the barn aisle doing chores and there's you know Robin posing and I'll click and treat for that pretty pose as I go past. But I'm filling water buckets, but I've, I've given him a way of engaging with me that is not problematic. Mm-hmm. And, and now uh, I'm done. He, with could, he could be pausing and you would never have time to like pause, 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 pause. And you're like, okay, I, I do need to get, you know, these chores done. <laughs> so I'm sure there's some, you know, there's a little bit of duration or extinction going on. Well, it's it's that over time, what he has learned is that I have to actually be looking at him. Um, so if I walk past him with my water bucket and I, my back is to him, he can pose. You know, I don't, I can't tell if he's posing because my back is turned to him. So he has learned over time when to offer the behavior. Right. Um, so so there's there's the cue that if I look at you. Then the store's open. Right. Because if my back is to you, you know, I, it's not a behavior I can hear. Um, right. And, and that's, you know, that's evolved over time. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I'm working on with the goats, uh, and this is, this is very relevant, I think. So what I like to do with the goats, what I want to be able to do is to go out with them for walks, which we do on a... Uh, and and I enjoy the the walks and they they're all loose they they uh, they stay with me it's very very pleasant we go um, want, right now they they go actually I should say they go out eating because it's more that they spend most of their time browsing which is fine and they will uh, come up to me at times they'll they'll break away from what they're doing and and one of them will come running up to me and and what I want is. I want to reinforce them for coming to me, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But then I want them to have something that they can do if they're going to stay near me so that I'm not feeling like I'm suddenly being mugged by five goats and where they're just kind of demanding, feed us, feed us, feed us. So I don't, I, that I don't want. So I, I want behaviors that they can offer me that I can click and reinforce and that feel as though space management is still sanity <laughs> sanity is still being maintained mm. and, and of course i have the extra challenge of elian the uh, one of the the older goats he is very clear in that nobody should interact with me unless he is also there getting his due and he will drive he will drive the other goats away so you know it's it's a real juggling match in terms of making sure that he's occupied so the others are not being attacked mm-hmm. so I wanted these behaviors I want I wanted I wanted things for them to do well you can't ask for something and expect to get it on a consistent basis unless you've gone through a teaching process to teach it to your learner mm-hmm. as well as the guiding principles yep so I need that I needed to give them to put in repertoire behaviors that would be uh, useful out on the walks. And that's what we're working on now. 
Now to teach that, I have to work with them individually. Right. So in our morning training sessions, the behaviors that I'm picking, the things that I'm focused on, are all things that, they're things that the goats have shown me that they enjoy. So the, the behaviors are, we sort of followed what they have found easy to learn. Mm-hmm. I guess that would be a way of phrasing it. So Elian, who will drive the others off, he likes lifting his front feet one after the other. Okay, like so the Spanish walk Yes, so some of the start of the Spanish walk. And it's very hard to charge another goat when you're in the middle of a Spanish walk. Right. So it's a great behavior for him. You know, he's up, he's lifting this leg and that leg. And, you know, it's like, I really would like to drive off oh, little Wren, but I'm too busy lifting my front leg to do that. So it's a great behavior for him. Peleus is, his is backing. So he can back up, which moves him away from Elian. So it's really quite funny because I'll often know they'll come up as um, a pair when we're out walking. And so Elian will be by my side, lifting a front leg, lifting a front leg, and Peleus will be backing. And because they have different... It's quite a picture, Alex. <laughs> well, yes. And, but the good thing is, because they have different duration for the behavior, mm. that I can manage those two. So they can offer their behaviors without needing to go after the other, you know, uh, without Elian driving Peleus off. And then Finch is, uh, he's learning the backing as well. That's an important one for him. But also he does spins. So that's fun. And uh, the two girls, what they really like to do is to lie down next to me, which is a challenge for them when the other, you know, like if Elian comes zooming in, they don't really want to be lying down and be that vulnerable Mm -hmm. if they're about to be, driven away. So what they're what they're all getting, hopefully this is going to tie back to what we were talking about, is I'm giving them behaviors that they can offer me that I will reinforce, not because we're in a formal training session and I asked for it, but because if you come running up to me and then you lie down next to my feet, I will click and reinforce you. And, oh, by the way, here comes Elian. I'll, I'll ask him to lift a foot. You can then stay lying down next to me, and I will reinforce him like mad for letting you stay there mm-hmm. while he lifts a foot. And it keeps me entertained, <laughs> and it keeps it from feeling like a mob scene. Yeah, yeah. Did I, did I manage to keep that related to anything that we were just talking about? Well, no, I think it always comes down to planning what we want, you know, because, and it may be with our horses, you know, because we don't spend our life with them as much as we do horse, our dogs, for instance, or cats, we live with them. Although in your case, you kind of live with your horse a lot. But if we're in a boarding situation, we arrive, and it's true, I think, in both, both circumstances anyway, that we have to plan because the behaviors will keep coming. Well, and that's partly why I don't like to think about I'm in a formal training session, and therefore I have my tree pouch on, and the rest of the time I'm not training because 
I really do want to be opportunistic. Mm -hmm. So if... Well, for sure, training is happening all the time. That's actually the point. Yes, yes. That is the point. But, you know, and that's why I use the, the word formal training session, but really there are informal training sessions going on as soon as you step, even when you're not there in a way, Right. Um, but training is going on all the time because we learn all the time and so do our animals. And that doesn't mean that because I have my treat pouch on that I have to be reaching into it and giving my animal a goodie. But it does mean that if a situation arises where I want to jump in with the clarity of a click in a treat, if I want to take advantage of something that is occurring, then I'm able to, I'm ready. Now, I know for some people, what they found is that for them, taking the treat pouch off yeah, is uh, important because it's a clear cue that says, mm-hmm. you know, we're not, we're not interacting in that way. So I think a lot of it depends upon what you have put into repertoire and what you've primed. So I like to prime, I like to put in the default behaviors. So if we were in the barnyard and the goats were out and little Wren came uh, running up to me and plopped herself down next to me, I would want to be able to click and reinforce that very good choice on her part of lying down, that I didn't need I did not need to cue it with a specific, you know, hand gesture or verbal cue or, you know, it's uh, my presence was enough for her to say, oh, uh, I think I think I'll choose the lying down behavior. I want to make sure that I'm in a position to reinforce that good choice that she just made. Mm -hmm. So and then over time. You know, I'll build, so what I'm working on now is building some duration so that I'm not um, having to just shove food at her, but I want duration in the lying down. And that takes, duration takes time to build, but over time it will develop. I definitely understand the idea of formal training sessions. You know, we, uh, I just opened the gate and now Ren, it's your turn. You come out, the focus is all on you. This is uh, definitely a formal training session. Then in the evening, when I open the game, everybody comes flowing out and we go up into the back fields. I don't really think of those. I think we're, we're out for a walk. Mm-hmm. They're formal training sessions. But what I want to be able to do is use the behaviors that I've been teaching them in the morning in those formal training sessions. You know, the reason that I teach them is so that they're available to be used when we're out on the walk. So now if if Ren comes running up to me and, and lies down, she gets clicked and reinforced. And then if Finch comes running up, that he's not driving her away, that he's got a way to get reinforced as well. Oh, let me ask you to spin. And it's, it's, he's, he's not quite there yet because... He's not quite secure enough with that behavior and an alien nearby to be able to to spin, but it'll it'll come, and the backing certainly will come. So 
we have the formal training sessions so that those behaviors are available for use in in the real world mm. you know that that on a performance basis you know why do we teach a small child to say please and thank you so that as they move out into the wider world that's in repertoire you know i think it's it's traditionally uh, the relationship was more like i come in i train and then it's over and you know the horse is in the pasture he barely yeah. looks at the human where our, our horses are you know they're in the pasture they see our car coming and they run up right <laughs> so right. it's it's a different kind of a relationship thank you <laughs> i'm i'm liking it personally <laughs> yes yeah and it, I think it does, in some respects, it does demand more of us. You know, in, in a, it's easier to just say, you know, I come in, I pull the horse out of the stall, I groom it, totally not paying any attention to how he reacts. Inches and, you know, you know, it's just, I just, um, I, I groom it, I put the saddle on it, notice the pronoun, um, you know, I put the saddle on it, I put the bridle on, we go in, we have a ride, and then I... And then we're done, which I think for, for probably everybody listening to this podcast, that is not, that's not how they are and probably never was how, they, how they've been with their horses. But we've all, if we've been in boarding barns and seen horses that, relationships that do fit that. And it doesn't mean the people don't love their horses. They love their horses. It's just it's just a way of being around them that is different. Yeah. It's us who look weird to them. Yes, yes. <laughs> it takes more time and energy and everything else to interact. Um, you think of that in terms of any of the relationships that you have, mm-hmm. that a, a relationship takes energy. You know, just even it's even if it's just a simple matter of remembering to drop somebody an email or to pick up the phone and call them or you know whatever whatever it is that relationships take take they they need to be nourished. Yeah, because when you only uh, give sign when it's useful for you, well, that usually doesn't make for a very rich relationship. You know, if you only call when you need a service. <laughs> or you need something, but you don't invest in the relationship, well, it won't be the same kind of relationship that, yeah. And there's certainly, there are lots of interactions that, that it should just be on that sort of business. You know, this is the, I take my car in to get its oil changed mm-hmm. um, periodically kind of thing. But the relationships that we can have with our animals can be, so much more if we invest in those relationships. And I think you know, going back to the beginning of the conversation, this whole learning how to fill a dance card, mm-hmm. you know, how, to, how to have a conversation that can become very rich and interesting to both of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and, initial, and it is a foot race initially. You have this very eager individual who is excited by the game and wants more, more, more. Um, but the only behavior you you know 
because you've just started is holding a target out and having your horse orient to it. That doesn't feel much of it, you know, and you've, you've got the evening to spend with your horse. I mean, you've done that for, you know, a round or two of 20 treats, and then it's, okay, I've got the whole rest of the evening. How do I fill the dance card? And so initially what you do is you do what you know, which is you bring the horse out and you groom him as you've always groomed him. Unless you have a horse like Gregor, who will probably attack you. I mean, literally, he was a very dangerous horse if you do something like that. And so you learn fast. That's the kind of horse that really teaches you fast what it means to keep them engaged and fill a dance garden. It's not safe to just groom him. So how do I use the clicker training to help this become a safe situation? Most of us don't have horses like that. Thank goodness. But we can still learn from horses like that because they're the ones that really make us, turn us into great trainers. Because we have to, without the expression, dot all the I's and cross all the T's. Um, and we can't, when you have horses like that, you can't get away with, you know, in quotes, you can't get away with just bringing them out, putting them on the crossed eyes, and grooming them. And with the horses, I don't want to get away with. So how do we develop that conversation so that every part of it I, you know one of the things that I used to love was watching Anne with with Magnet so I gave Magnet to Anne Edie Pan, Panda's person and Anne is she's just a, such a superb groomer so Magnet was uh, a gray horse who lived outside in a paddock that had a lot of clay in it need I say more in terms of when the rain came <laughs> and he's out in a muddy paddock, he would come into the barn in the evening looking like horses look when they've been brought in from the paddocks and he's covered with mud and he's gray. And I'm sure everybody knows it's got a clear picture of what I'm talking about. And Anne would spend an hour, hour and a half, two hours grooming him. And he would come into the arena for his lesson absolutely spotless and she never used water on him she cleaned him with her hands with brushes and she groomed him until she could feel his coat was clean and every part of that grooming was this it was like watching a Japanese tea ceremony and it was a conversation and it was a warm-up for the training and it was just beautiful to watch so and they both loved it and so by the time he came into the arena for his to, to be ridden, he was already warmed up mm. through the grooming. I love that. Watching him, watching her groom him was like a Japanese tea ceremony. <laughs> I like that. So, you know, we can, you can do my style of grooming, which is uh, <laughs> for the licking of promise uh, or Anne's style of grooming. We're a great team because I'm an obsessive stall cleaner and she's an obsessive groomer. <laughs> so so it, it, it worked out beautifully. But it's that whole, how do you enrich the experience so that when you are grooming, it's not just 
a perfunctory, how do I get the dirt off so I can put a saddle on? But it is this just lovely tactile conversation and exchange that's going on between two good friends. Yeah, another example of the difference between being goal-oriented and process-oriented. You know, is it about cleaning the horse so that, you know, he's spotless? Or is it about how the grooming is going on? What exchange is going on between the two? Yeah, and the good news is, in a situation like that, you can have both. Yeah. You end up with a horse who is truly spotless, but who also has been... Where, where that whole time spent in the grooming process has been time well spent in conversation with a very good friend, you know, with your equine friend. Yeah, and you can have a horse totally relaxed, almost sleeping. Yeah. And so when you say, well, where, where's the formal training session? Where's the training? Well, I think... After a while, there those boundaries fall away. Yeah. So there may be a very focused form of the training when we go into the arena. He's got his saddle on. She's going to ride. But the grooming is a is is also a part of of the conversation. It's very much a part of the conversation. Well, certainly, if the grooming's not going well, the riding won't. That's right. Or, you know, or there'll be a match, you know, in some way. But, you know, I have a formal training session with each of the goats in the morning where we work on certain skills. And then we go out for our walk. And it's, but there's still conversation, interaction that's that's ongoing. And I think it can become a problem if we think too much about these about that separation. Well, you know, sometimes you hear people with dogs say, oh, I don't train my dog. You know, I don't do training. I'm not good at training, but actually you do all day. Right. Every time you're with them, you're doing something from, and, and I, and I do know with the dogs, there's, there's more of that distinction made between I'm just living with them versus having the formal training session where I'm working on, like we just finished the, the conversation with um, Michelle. Michelle. Uh, yes, on, on the freestyle, you know, maybe I'll have my formal freestyle training session where I'm focusing on teaching certain behaviors and then we just go out for a walk. But even when you just go out for a walk, there's a lot of behaviors that you're using that you've been working on, that you've been teaching to that individual so that that walk is successful. So I think in many respects, it's easier or better to let the lines blur than it is to keep them as really those separate and distinct, you know, I, I do my, I do my clicker training session and then, and then it's done. And I'm just handling the horses as I've always handled them. So you wanted to talk about um, your online uh, clinic. I wasn't sure if I should stop the podcast here or continue on with the conversation we had about these new stay-at-home clinics. But 
as you can guess from the music, I've decided that this podcast is already long enough. This isn't the time to start a new conversation. So we'll save that for another day. If you're interested in these online clinics, you can go to my website, theclickercenter.com. There you'll find lots of information. I've written up a detailed description of these clinics, so you'll have a really good sense of how they work, uh, how how the days unfold, and how much time you'll be spending on the computer. And I also have the dates and the registration information. In fact, this weekend, depending upon when you're listening to this, of course, but this weekend, July 11 and 12th, I've got a stay-at-home clinic. I'm, I'm tempted to say that I'll be in California because it's set up for the West Coast time zone. So it feels as though I'm going to be in California because I'm changing my time zone by three hours. And then next weekend, July 18 and 19th, I'll be doing another of these virtual clinics, this time on the East Coast, so back in the Eastern time zone. This one's going to be on rope handling. And yes, we are going to do a a virtual clinic that involves rope handling. And I think it's going to be a great way to really develop your rope handling skills. So if you're interested, do check out my website, theclickercenter.com and there you'll find the registration information. I've got two more clinics coming up in August. You can read about those as well. They're going to be set up for the UK. So that's enough announcements for for now. And in the meantime, thank you for listening and do stay well.